This episode of True Spies contains graphic details related to the sexual abuse of children that listeners may find disturbing. Incoming transmission. Welcome. Welcome to True Spies. Week by week, mission by mission, you'll hear the true stories behind the world's greatest espionage operations. You'll meet the people who navigate this secret world. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? This is True Spies. I literally thought that it would be much better for me to go back in there with a grenade and just pull the pin and blow all of us up in that room. And I had to fight those urges. I was going to have to sublimate my hatred and disdain for what they were espousing if we were going to make this case successful. This is True Spies. Episode 42, Inside Nambler. There are many surprising places that a life undercover might take you. I posed as a contract killer, as a drug dealer, both as a high roller drug dealer and a, and a street level drug dealer. I was a white collar criminal, been an international arms dealer. In his 26 year long career as a street agent in the FBI, Bob Hamer was thrown more than a few curveballs. I've been shot at, I've shot people. I've had a contract put out on my life. I've had a gun put to my head, but never anything that ripped at the fabric of my soul. Until, that is, he found himself walking through Manhattan one evening, shoulder to shoulder, with a new type of target. We assembled about 25 or 30 of us, and we banned a walk from Grand Central Station to Times Square. This stroll through the big city is Bob Hamer's first face-to-face contact with the organization he has been stalking for more than a year. As we were getting a little closer, I could sense the excitement. It was almost like when you go to the big game and as you know the game is about to start and you begin to find your seat and you could just sense this excitement. I could sense the excitement that these men were feeling and I didn't understand it. To the casual observer, they might be a group of businessmen on their way to dinner to blow off steam after a day at a dull conference. But their destination was no restaurant, no theater. And then we walked into Toys R Us and they literally ran to a 60 foot indoor Ferris wheel. They ran to the railing and they looked over the Ferris wheel and they watched these little boys that were in the Ferris wheel going around on this ride. And I sat there and I listened to some of these men talk about what they wanted to do to little boys. A warning. To hear the story of Bob Hamer's infiltration of this group of men is to follow him down a rabbit hole to a dark and depraved place. One that parents will recognize as the setting of their very worst nightmares. This assignment would see a consummate professional, a man with decades of experience inside criminal organizations of the most violent ilk, redefine his entire understanding of evil. Now, up until this time, I had communicated with members that were in prison. I had been 
shocked by some of the graphic images that they described in their letters to me. But I guess I naively assumed that all the, the bad ones were in jail, but they weren't. They were right there at the railing talking about some of the most graphic things they wanted to do to these little boys. You do not have to come with Bob Hamer on this journey. If you choose to do so, like him, you may find yourself disturbed by the enemy that lurks in plain sight. Had I just been a regular FBI agent walking past and hearing these guys, I probably would have thrown them over the railing. But now here I was, an undercover agent, listening to this, and I realized that they were amongst us. These men, they were out in society, walking amongst us and wanting to do things to, to children that were reprehensible and vile and evil. And that's when it, it really hit me that I've got to take this investigation a lot more seriously. And uh, we've got to do something about the men that are in this organization. The name of the organization is NAMBLA. Bob Hamer is about to walk out the Toys R Us in Times Square and devote the remaining years of his career to putting them behind bars. But before he does that, let's retrace the steps that brought him here. Okay, hi, I'm Bob Hamer. I spent 26 years as an FBI agent, all of those years as a street agent. If you've listened to True Spies before, you'll know that the agent's pathway is often winding. For Bob, it was no different. I spent four years on active duty as a Marine Corps, and I was, I was an attorney. I was a judge advocate. What I realized was that I really did not enjoy being an attorney. There was no excitement in the courtroom for me, so I was looking for something a lot more exciting. The siren call came buried near the back of his morning paper. He was 29 years old. I was surprised to find an ad in the sports section of the Los Angeles Times that the CIA was looking for case officers. So I applied. My very first meeting, I went into a room at the federal building in Southern California. It was a small room. There were two chairs in the room. I sat down. All of a sudden, this man walks in and he's got a scar from ear to ear. And I'm thinking, this is, this is the excitement I'm looking for. I mean, this guy's gotta have stories to tell. More interviews followed. Cryptic assignments to demonstrate his chops as a potential spy. Fly under an assumed name, pay cash for everything, and you will be reimbursed once you arrive in Washington, D.C. Then came the tests. Language aptitude, current affairs. Bob was getting close. He could tell. I flew back to San Diego. I told my wife, I said, honey, we're going to be spies. This is really cool. This is so much neater than being an attorney. There was just one final hurdle to hop over. And then I went back for my third and final interview. And during the course of the testing, they had given me a personality test. And apparently they graded you from a zero to a 10. A zero could be caught on a deserted island and spend the rest of his life there and be perfectly content. And a 10 had to be constantly surrounded by people. Your classic psych evaluation. Bob Heyman knew exactly what these people were after. I got to admit, I kind of skewed my answers. I mean, I thought they were looking for some guy that they dropped behind the enemy lines. He shoots the third world dictator and then they extricate him by a helicopter. But when the psychologist 
came to interview me after the results of the test, he looked at me and he shook his head and he said, I've never seen a zero personality. As it turned out, Bob might have overcooked his answers somewhat. Apparently, they were looking for threes and fours. They wanted somebody that uh, essentially could sidle up to people at embassy parties and convince them to betray their country. To this day, my wife will still remind me that I'm the only person declared a zero personality by the federal government. So the CIA didn't pan out, but Bob had also put in an application with the FBI. I'd gone through the written exam, the oral exam. Everything was looking really good for moving forward in the FBI. And then they had a one-year hiring freeze. With his tenure in the Marines all but over and a young family to support, Bob had to resign himself to the reality that a life of excitement might not be on the cards. I'd taken a job with a, a firm in Los Angeles and it was a Monday night and I literally prayed to God. And I said, look, you'll get more money if I take this job in Los Angeles, but I wish that the CIA or the FBI would call. And the very next morning, I received a phone call and the FBI said, look, we just had somebody drop out. Can you come back to Quantico, Virginia, to the FBI Academy within the month and begin your term as an FBI agent? Prayers answered. Bob Hamer began his life as an FBI street agent. He was not disappointed by his first days on the beat. I loved being out on the street. I loved investigating crimes. My first assignments involved kidnappings, bank robberies, extortions. It, it was real FBI work. I mean, just like the kind of stuff you see on television. But there was one angle to the job that he was keen to get some experience in. I had met with several people when I was back at the FBI Academy who'd worked undercover. The undercover work seemed pretty exciting to me. So I was looking for an opportunity to work undercover and within about six months of being a street agent, the opportunity arose where I could assume an undercover role. Bob's first undercover assignment was to cozy up to the Italian-American mafia via his target, Dave. Dave was a high-line residential burglar who had hit some of the, the biggest homes in the Southwest, stealing jewelry, art, gold, anything of value in these homes. At one point, we flew over to Scottsdale, Arizona. I met with some mob guys at a restaurant. After we'd had dinner, we went back into the back room of a restaurant. And the owner of the restaurant, who was a mob guy, pulled out a tray and started cutting lines of cocaine. A moment torn straight from the script of a late night crime movie. The undercover cop the mobsters, the mound of cocaine. But this wasn't TV. This was real. And Bob Hamer had to think on his feet. They started cutting the cocaine, and I'm thinking, man, this is getting real. Now what do I do? And when it came to me, I kind of shrugged my shoulders like, ah, I'm just going to pass. And all of a sudden, Joe, one of the targets of this investigation, opens up a drawer and pulls out a gun puts a gun to my head and says, if you don't do a line, you must be a cop. This is your very first assignment as an undercover agent, and you have not been prepared for a moment like this. There's a gun to your head, a line of cocaine under your nose, 
and you're surrounded by enemy targets. What would you do? I said, look, I'll do your line, but I can't do cane products. I'm allergic to cane. I can't even do Novocaine at a dentist. My heart's going to stop and good luck trying to explain to the paramedic why I am in need of emergency assistance. Dave, the, the guy that I'd been running with, who was the other target of our investigation, turned to Joe and he said, hey, I'm not going to do this either. So Joe put the gun down. It was Bob's first taste of the excitement he'd been so desperate for in the Marines. And it was far more addictive than any drug he turned down that night. Over the next 26 years in the Bureau, Bob Hamer would chase that high time and time again. He lived to look his targets in the eye, to teeter close to the brink, to almost get caught. I have a lot of respect for the sniper. These guys that sit on the, the rooftops and sight in their target and pull the trigger when necessary. But also, I like the idea of getting close to my target. And that was the difference between being an undercover agent and being a case agent. Many times a case agent will sit back and do the investigation. He will gather all the evidence that's needed for a successful prosecution and may not even have contact with the target until they're ready to make the arrest. But with an undercover agent, now you're face to face. Bob developed his own personal philosophy for undercover work one that he borrowed from the Native Americans of the Great Plains. The Plains Indians in America had something that they called counting coup, and they would have coup sticks. The idea was to sneak up close enough to your enemy and to touch him with your coup stick and then successfully ride away. And they would take this coup stick and then mark on it. Well, that's kind of the way I, I felt with as an undercover agent. I had this coup stick, and a, kind of an invisible coup stick, and I was able to get close enough to the enemy that I could touch him with my coup stick and not be captured, not be harmed, but eventually would take down my enemy. Bob never lost the taste for that contact, that danger. In fact, when the job wasn't living up to the excitement of a gun to the head, he had a few tricks up his sleeve to liven things up. I was always trying to get that adrenaline flowing and I would just see how far I could push the envelope without getting caught. So oftentimes I would play music. I think my favorite, I was involved in a, an international weapons deal and there was this song by country Western artist, uh, Charlie Daniels, and the song was called Uneasy Rider. And there was a line in that song and every time the target of our investigation got into my undercover car and I turned the ignition to the car on, the first line you heard on every tape was that song. And Charlie Daniels singing, Don't you know this man's a spy? He's an undercover agent for the FBI. How's that for counting coup? Bob Hamer played dozens of roles in his time as an undercover agent. Mobsters, contract killers, degenerate gamblers. But the one that left its biggest mark, the one that would deliver him to that gut-churning encounter with evil in a children's megastore, came near the end of his career. Like most of his assignments, it began with a phone call from a colleague, an FBI case officer. And he said, look, Bob, we have an undercover operation available. It involves sex tours to Thailand. And I kind of laughed and I said, hey, sign me up. Anything to get out of the office, right? 
if I figure your tax dollars are paying for me to get massages over in Thailand, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And he said, if you'd like, I can provide a little more details. Ah, those pesky details, always bursting the bubble. The case agent filled Bob in on the background to his assignment. An individual was arrested back in Knoxville, Tennessee. And during the arrest and the search of his laptop computer, they found that he had child pornography on the computer and videos. Videos filmed by the man himself, featuring unspeakable crimes committed against children on foreign soil. During the interrogation, he admitted that he went to Thailand and it was set up through a travel agent that was based in Hollywood, California. The Bureau wondered how many like this man were traveling overseas to fulfill their darkest impulses. And they decided that they were going to take a look at this travel agent that was putting together these overseas travel excursions for boy lovers or BLs is what they call themselves. Bob began his research into so-called boy lovers and found himself running into the same letters scattered across dark corners of the internet time and time again. N-A-M-B-L-A. The letters stood for the North American Man-Boy Love Association. NAMBLA began in 1978. There had been a problem in the, the Boston, Massachusetts area where some men had been arrested for luring boys into their home, showing them pornography, engaging in alcohol and drug abuse, and then engaging in in sexual promiscuity with these boys. There was a law enforcement effort, and these men were arrested. Now there was an uproar about this whole situation, and people got together saying it was wrong because the boys had agreed to consensually engage in sex with these men. There was a meeting in a church, and during that meeting, this group of NAMBLA was formed. As unbelievable as it may sound, this group of self-declared boy lovers were a First Amendment-protected organization. Their stated purpose was to abolish the laws of consent that rendered any sexual contact between an adult and a child statutory rape. When the organization first started, it was actually pretty open. They participated in gay pride parades. You can find photographs on the the internet of men marching with NAMBLA, holding up their banners. But that transparency came to an end in the late 90s with a horrific news story that shook the nation. There was a little boy named Jeffrey Curley that was killed by a NAMBLA member and an associate The child was horribly tortured, disfigured, raped, and his body was stuck in a container and thrown off a bridge. During the course of this investigation, they learned that just prior to the assault, the NAMBLA member had been in a public library and had gone on the NAMBLA website and the charges were that essentially he received the uh, the type of accolades and enthusiasm that he needed in order to move forward to to solicit sex and to attack this child. Jeffrey Curley's murder brought a great deal of exposure to Nambler, but the organization still claimed to be nothing more than an advocacy group. Bob Hamer 
wasn't buying it. It was clear from my research that NAMBLA was something more than just a uh, political lobbying organization to abolish the age of consent law. In fact, it was an opportunity for like-minded men to get together and share stories of their sexual conquests, of where they could go to find boys, of what they could do and how they could seduce boys. So in 2001, he took his first step into an unsettling new world. I ended up joining the organization as part of this undercover operation on the travel agent. I just figured to add to my credibility, I should become a member of NAMBLA. It only took submitting an application and $35. And within a week or two, I received a letter back announcing my membership to NAMBLA. The travel agent case ultimately fell apart. But Bob had already begun to embed himself in this disparate community of pedophiles and sex offenders. I was a member of the organization and began getting solicitations from them to send Christmas cards and participate in a pen pal program for the NAMBLA members that were in prison. I contacted our assistant United States attorney and said, hey, I've got this opportunity. I'd like to go ahead and pursue it. And she gave me permission to send out Christmas cards and begin to engage in a pen pal program. Bob's plan was to infiltrate Nampa and smoke out the predators who called it home, locking up as many as he possibly could in the process. But to do that, he would need to create a cover unlike any other in his career. Clearly, if I'm posing as a contract killer, you don't really care whether I'm a Republican or a Democrat, where I like cricket or baseball, or whether I like the opera or country and Western music. All you care about is whether you believe I have the ability to kill the person that you want killed. But in NAMBLA, this was a complete change of character for me in that I had to be 100% a NAMBLA member. I had to be a boy lover. I had to think like them. I had to talk like them. I had to walk like them. And it was going to be 24-7. Bob had been accepted as a member of NAMBLA. He had paid his dues and begun corresponding with boy lovers. But actually meeting them face-to-face was going to prove difficult. Because of the lawsuits that arose out of Jeffrey Curley, NAMBLA was afraid of exposure. It was no longer open in its membership. It was no longer marching in parades with NAMBLA flyers. They were no longer having open meetings in libraries and public buildings. They had essentially gone underground. And I was told that it would take three years before I could be invited to one of their meetings. In the meantime, Bob got to work infiltrating the group from afar in whatever capacity he could. I had been participating in their Christmas card program, in their pen pal program. I even wrote for their magazine. They have a a magazine called the NAMBLA Bulletin, and I, I wrote for that. Given the organization's secrecy, he was surprised when, after just 18 months of membership, he was invited to the NAMBLA annual conference in New York City. Apparently, because of my participation in the pen pal program and because NAMBLA members in prison had complimented management about how good I was about corresponding and because of my efforts to write the articles for the magazine, they viewed me as a true believer 
and invited me back to, to New York City for that first face-to-face meeting with NAMBLA members. This was the moment Bob had been waiting for. It was time to finally give Robert Wallace the alias under which he had joined NAMBLA, his first public outing since the failed travel agent case. When we began the travel agent case, I was fearful that I kind of looked too much like a cop, that I smelled like a cop, and that I needed to come off with a little softer image. So I, I literally went to the Salvation Army and, and bought a, a walking stick, and I affected a, a limp and told the travel agent that I had a, a medical condition. And I kind of liked that idea. So I just kind of kept up with that as I pursued this Namble investigation. With his walking stick on the aeroplane seat beside him, Bob Hamer flew from California to New York, where he would meet the group he had been circling for more than a year. He knew that winning their trust would not be easy. It was interesting. This was the most paranoid group that I had ever infiltrated. I had worked gangs in South Central Los Angeles for five years. I had worked some major drug organizations. I worked some international criminal organizations. I infiltrated the La Cosa Nostra, the the Italian mafia. But never in any of these infiltrations did I meet a group as paranoid as NAMBLA. NAMBLA was so paranoid, in fact, they wouldn't reveal details of the conference's location. My initial meeting with them was at Grand Central Station. I put on my best boy lover face and hobbled down the ramp to the lower dining concourse. Now, keep in mind, I didn't know any of these members. We had some grainy photographs of possible members, but as I said earlier, NAMBLA was a First Amendment protected organization. So the Bureau didn't have a folder of NAMBLA members or NAMBLA photographs. So I'm going down the ramp to the lower concourse and I'm thinking, how am I gonna identify these guys? As it turned out, Bob needn't have worried. And all of a sudden, I look over, and there's a group of men huddled in a circle, and it was like, holy smokes, central casting, send me some perverts. But as Bob approached the group, he noticed something that surprised him. As I got closer and began to talk with the guys, I realized that not everyone looked like a central casting character. Some of them looked normal. They could have been your son's baseball coach or school teacher or the, the guy next door. You already know what happened next. The surprise excursion to Toys R Us. The Ferris wheel. The impulse to hurl each and every Nambler member present from the railing to the floor 60 feet below. There's one aspect of Bob Hamer's experience as an undercover agent that I haven't told you about. It's a big part of what drew him to this line of work in the first place. I have to say that my favorite class in college was a course called Deviant Behavior. And I laugh as I look back on it because I either portrayed everyone we studied in that class or I arrested everyone that we studied in that class. But as a result of that, I've I've had an interest in people that are different. I've, I've always enjoyed sitting down with somebody that Maybe I didn't agree with politically or religiously or, or even culturally, and just learning from them. As far as Bob can tell, this is what separated him from most of his colleagues at the Bureau. What I found in the FBI 
is that most people saw the world, most law enforcement officers saw the world in black and white. And either you violated the law or you didn't violate the law. But if you're gonna be an undercover agent, you've got to see the gray. You have to understand that there is something in between that violation of the law and that adherence to the law. And to me, that's the gray area. It was this willingness, this capacity to see the gray that allowed Bob to thrive on any assignment he was placed on. Bad guys can smell fear, they can smell hatred. If you go into a situation where you are appalled by the behavior of your target and you hate that person for what they've done, they're gonna pick up on that. So you as the undercover agent, you've gotta find the gray. You have to latch on to some good quality of that person and be able to deal with that good quality and set aside all of the evil that they've been doing. Uh, we used to kind of laugh and say, you know, other than a serial killer, the guy's a pretty nice guy. Serial killers are one thing, but Bob Hamer had just watched a group of adult men gather in a toy store and describe in graphic detail the things they wanted to do to the innocent children around them. Surely this was about as black and white as cases come. For me, it was up until that point, it really was black and white. You harm a child, you go to prison. That was my attitude. And I still had that attitude, but now I realized that to work undercover, I was gonna have to see the gray. I was gonna have to find that characteristic in each of these men that at least I could latch onto, that I could kind of separate out the Bob Hamer from the Bob Wallace. And I had to become that boy lover just long enough to engage with them and to see whether or not we could put together some prosecutable cases. Hello again, True Spies listeners. This episode is made possible with the help of June's Journey, a thrilling detective game which you can play right on your phone. If you're a True Spies listener, it's safe to assume you're interested in clandestine missions, investigative adventures, and deciphering the latest mystery. You can find all of this in abundance and more in June's Journey. In the game, you'll play as the plucky June Parker, an amateur detective in the roaring 1920s. Poor June is set to investigating in order to find the truth of her sister's untimely murder. But I don't want to give too much away, because the fun of June's journey is seeing where this twisting story takes you. But I've just come to a grisly conclusion, thanks to working alongside other real players online as part of a detective club. Take heed, though. Not everyone wants to be June's friend. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android. Every day in America, 60 million packages are delivered. But we don't always know what's inside. He bent down to pick the package up. That's when the device detonated. Danger is everywhere, and no one is safe in Austin, Texas, as law enforcement hunts a serial bomber for 19 days. From Sony Music Entertainment, Campside Media, and Pegalo Pictures, this is Witnessed. 19 days. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts to binge all episodes or listen weekly wherever you get your podcasts. After the sickening shock of the Toys R Us expedition, the rest of the New York conference was, well, relatively pedestrian. The meetings talked a lot 
more about the NAMBLA agenda, the NAMBLA mission statement, talked about NAMBLA history. But during the meeting, there were never any type of discussions about where we can go to find little boys, where we can go to seduce little boys, what we can do to seduce little boys, or, or what type of sex acts that we can do on children. So none of that took place during the meetings. Those kind of discussions took place during the breaks. One weekend in New York was enough to confirm Bob's suspicions. NAMBLA was less an advocacy group than it was a networking opportunity for sexual predators. During the breaks and evenings of the conference, the men around him readily discussed their desires, their preferences. But as a new member to NAMBLA, there was a limit to the access that Bob was afforded. His main aims were to get in with the group, to not blow his cover, and to make contacts. I didn't do a whole lot of probing, but I did develop a couple relationships at that first meeting. One of them was an individual who was an ordained minister that was a chiropractor that lived in California. And he and I exchanged email addresses and talked at various times throughout the three-day weekend. It was this ordained minister called Jeff who provided the first opening to the inner circle of Nambler in the months after the New York conference. We were exchanging emails, phone calls, and getting together for meetings. And I was trying to see if there was anything there that could help us move forward, at least with this one person that I had met at the conference that was a boy lover, that admitted to me on several different occasions of having sex with underage boys and traveling to have the sex with underage boys, all in violation of, of federal law. As Bob got closer to Jeff, he gained valuable insight into the psyche of his target. He said that he was going through a 12-step program, trying to up his age of preference beyond the criminal age and was, was seeking to get away from the pedophilia but in fact, he wasn't. And he would tell me about the email exchanges that he had with a 14-year-old and how he was hoping that maybe he could have sex with, with this 14-year-old and was willing to travel to Canada to meet with the 14-year-old. Even though he was trying to, to get away from this aberration, he moved forward and would bring up something that it would just like, okay, we got to continue to target this guy. Eventually, he saw his moment to strike. I had told him that I had lost my entire collection of child pornography, my computer crash, and I, I lost everything. And at one point, he invited me to lunch. When we went to lunch, he said, I think I have something here you're going to like. And he handed me a thumb drive. When we got back and, and reviewed the thumb drive, it had 125 images of child pornography and eight videos of men having sex with boys. This prosecutable offense was the first payoff after two years investigating Nambler. Bob Hamer had his first taste of blood and he wanted more. Fortunately, the opportunity for a bigger catch was about to present itself. I get invited to the next meeting, which is going to be in Miami, Florida, for an, another general conference 
with selected members of the organization. Now that Bob had established himself as an active, trusted Nambla member, it was time to amp up his infiltration. We're getting ready for the Miami conference and we decide we're going to push this a little bit further and that, that I have the opportunity now to probably be more open since I've successfully got through that first meeting in New York. With his case agent, he devised a plan. We had set up a phony travel agency and I was going to go down to Miami and tell them that I was aware of a travel agency that was putting together overseas sex tours for boy lovers. Bob was to float the idea of a trip to his new friends in Nambla, somewhere exotic, accommodating, somewhere they could let loose. If he could convince the members of the group to commit to that kind of plan, the FBI could nail them. The charge would be conspiracy to travel to engage in sex with a minor. Bob Hamer arrived in Miami, fully prepared to take a more active role in discussions and steer conversations in the direction he needed to. And it had only been there a few minutes when someone I had not met at the previous meeting walks in with Peter Herman. And Peter, essentially the head of NAMBLA, introduces me to David, and we begin talking. As it turned out, Bob wouldn't need to steer any conversations to get what he was after. Before we get very far into the conversation, David brings up the fact, asking me if I like to travel. And I said, well, yeah, I go to Atlantic City every once in a while. And he said, well, I am an international flight attendant, and I have gone to Thailand and to Mexico, and Thailand is great, and begins to talk about the sexual encounters he had had at Thailand. From a legal perspective, David was making Bob's life a hell of a lot easier. In my mind, I'm thinking he is initiating, I didn't bring this up, he's the one that initiated going to Thailand, he's the one that talked about Mexico, from a legal perspective, he's taken away the entrapment argument because he's bringing it up. This set the theme for the rest of the conference. As in New York, the meetings themselves were full of dry procedural details about the operation of NAMBLA. But the breaks between meetings, where David took an active role, were much more interesting to our undercover agent. So during one of our first breaks the next morning, he was talking about travel, a few of the other Members had mentioned, one had mentioned that he'd been in Amsterdam. One had talked about going down into the Bahamas. And all of these men had, had admitted to traveling overseas and, and having sex with boys while overseas. And, of course, they did so on tape. Throughout his entire investigation of Nambla, Bob Hamer was wearing a wire. Each admission was recorded and saved waiting to be deployed as evidence in the prosecution that Bob longed for. All he had to do was pull together a little Nambla field trip and convince these predators to sign up. I had happened to mention that somebody that I knew had gone to a place down in Mexico and that I was going to research that. David said he was going to research a couple places in Costa Rica that he'd heard about. And so the idea was that as we'd left, that we would begin researching and try to come up with a location where we could 
we could all get together for uh, actually what we called a BLT, a boy lover tour. Remember, Bob's colleagues at the FBI have already set up a fake travel agency, one that would be willing to pull together exactly the kind of trip that NAMBLA members would be interested in. Now that we've, we've got the travel agency, now that we've got a couple people on board wanting to take the trip, obviously, as a federal investigation, we wanted to expand anyone who was willing to go on the trip and invite them. The first two willing tourists that Bob signed up were David and a dentist called Todd. To win their confidence, Bob Hamer had to put a lifetime of seeing the gray to good use. Fortunately, and I do mean fortunately, each of the people that we're targeting had some type of, I guess you could call it a redeeming social value. David, the international flight attendant, that we eventually learned was a PhD psychologist who worked at two Chicago area hospitals, was a funny guy. He was just humorous, and so you were, you were able to laugh at him. One of the other guys was a dentist, and he was a nice guy. He was someone that you could actually sit down and converse with. So the, I was able to kind of latch on to that quality, that gray quality that I needed in order to to continue to convince them that, that I was one of them. As he won their trust, Bob furnished his new friends with more and more details of the once-in-a-lifetime trip he was planning. The destination was to be Mexico. I had made up the fact that this BB&B, a bed, breakfast, and boys, was just below Ensenada. And it was a boat that would pick you up in Los Angeles and San Diego, and we could get a discount if we had 10 people. So trying to use that as a ploy to get them to invite other people so that we could save money on the trip. Bob encouraged David and Todd to invite others from the NAMBLA network to jump on this opportunity. One of the persons that, that Todd and David wanted to invite was Paul. And Paul was a bodybuilder, a fitness trainer, one of those guys that if you saw him, he would not be your central casting boy lover. There was also a new face at the Miami conference that had caught Bob's attention. A guy named Sam Lindblad. And Sam, it turned out, had been uh, convicted previously on at least two occasions of solicitation or having sex with little boys. And in fact, at the Miami meeting, admitted that he'd only been out of prison a little over a year where he had served seven years for uh, sex with a minor. So that was a guy that, that I was interested in and wanted to pursue him probably more so than anyone else because here he was a, a convicted sex offender that was still interested in pursuing the boy lover agenda. Bob knew there was no seeing the gray with a character like Sam Lindblad. He'd done it before, and he would do it again. He couldn't let him slip through his fingers. While we were at the conference, I had mentioned to Sam that I had written for uh, the NAMBLA Bulletin. Because he had been in prison, I thought that it might be a good idea if we wrote an article about boy lovers in prison and, and how 
we could protect ourselves if we were incarcerated. After the conference, with travel plans for Mexico in full swing, Bob flew to Albuquerque to interview Sam, ostensibly for the NAMBLA Bulletin. I had done a little research on the internet and I found what I thought to be a, a great restaurant in Albuquerque. It was a, a five-star restaurant. It wasn't coming out of my pocket, it was tax dollars, so I was gonna eat big or go home. Man, we had a great meal. It got my undercover Yelp review uh, that I would recommend it to anyone. Sam was edgy at the start of the meal. Local police had been rummaging through his trash. He was certain he was being watched. So he was talking about his paranoia and his fear. And at one point I said, you know, that's why I picked this expensive restaurant because I know no cop could afford to eat here. And he just smiled and he said that he appreciated that. Well, he didn't know that there were two FBI agents sitting about two tables away that were, that were watching us. Bob's tradecraft in drawing Sam out of his paranoid shell during that meal was nothing short of exemplary. Listen and learn. I told him that I was writing an article and I brought a notebook and I had questions laid out. And because of my condition, it was hard for me to write. So is it okay if I, if I record our answers while I still try to take some rough notes? And, and he said, sure, that was okay. So I had a little recorder and I would put it on the table and I would press the record button and then I would ask the questions. And then at one point, I turned off the recorder and he saw that the recorder was off. And I said, so, so how many boys did you really molest? And he began to tell me the number of boys that he had, had groomed. All of which was caught, of course, on the second recording device strapped to Bob's torso. And then as we began to get to the end of the meeting, I said, what is the one thing that you want us to warn the membership. And I will never forget this. It was kind of one of those production moments when you're making a big film. And he balled his fists and he closed his eyes and he said, there are so many sting operations out there. I didn't know it before, but just be careful. And it was like cut, print, we've got it. Here he was right in the middle of this sting operation and he didn't understand it. Bob left that meeting with a tape full of criminal admissions and a commitment from Sam Lindblad that he would join the Nambler party on their boy lover trip. And even better, he wanted to invite yet another Nambler member. With the addition of Sam's friend Dick, seven were now on board to travel to the BB&B in Ensenada. The problem was, this in and of itself was not a federal offense. One of the things that made this investigation different than anything that I had worked in my previous undercover operations, at this point, Jeff is the only one that's committed a criminal violation by giving me child pornography. With the other seven, they haven't committed a criminal offense. In this case, all we had was Jeff. We had seven people that were willing to go on the trip that had committed a few overt acts in that they had contacted me, they had emailed me, they had contacted the, the travel agent, they had provided a, a down payment for the trip. But the statute was written in such a way that you had to travel in interstate commerce. 
All of this made Bob very nervous. With any conspiracy, if you withdraw from the conspiracy before it's completed, oftentimes a prosecutor won't go forward. So we were to the point in this case that until we actually had them traveling in interstate commerce, until we had them on that particular day getting ready to board our boat, which is what was supposed to take us down to this bed, breakfast, and boys in Mexico, we probably didn't have a violation. With seven predators unwittingly tangled up in the trap he had laid, Bob Heyman knew he had to finalize the details of his sting operation. He was busy organizing interstate flights for his targets to arrive in San Diego or Los Angeles when he received a phone call from Dick, the boy lover that Sam Lindblad had mentioned in Albuquerque. Dick told Bob that he had some last-minute reservations about this trip to Mexico. And he was worried about the fact that this could be a sting operation. In no uncertain terms, he literally laid out our operations order. He told us that if he were running this case, and he reminded me that President Bush had signed legislation that made travel in interstate and international commerce a federal violation. And he's told me that if he were running the FBI or a federal agency, he would set up a sting operation where you would get people to deposit money, agree to travel, and then when they showed up to travel, they would be arrested. Put yourself in Bob's shoes here. You've spent more than three years infiltrating one of the most secretive criminal organizations on the planet. You've sidled up alongside a group of men whose very existence repulses you. You've meticulously plotted out an operation that will land multiple sexual predators where they belong, in prison. Now, you are hearing the exact details of that operation laid out before you by one of the Sting's targets. What would you do? I know that while I was talking to him, I was smiling because it was like, this is the challenge. I'm not going to entrap him, but I just kind of wet the whistle and explained to him that I understand why he's cautious, that, that I'm cautious. And I had looked into it and the person that told me about the trip had already gone, that he had gone last year, that nothing happened. I explained to him that I'd been a member for, for many years at NAMBLA, that I'd written for their magazine. I was in good standing. Bob turned on that zero personality once again. Dick was placated. Everything was coming together. Bob had won the trust of NAMBLA's inner circle, and that was crucial for an investigation like this one. You see, it was not enough for the NAMBLA members to commit to traveling to Mexico. They also had to outline what they intended to do once they arrived. In this case, I had to get them to admit that their primary purpose of travel was to have sex and specifically what sex acts they were going to perform or that they planned on performing sex. So in other words, they weren't just coming to San Diego to go down to Mexico because the weather was warmer than what it was in Chicago. Bob and his colleagues at the FBI designed a kind of menu of services that the bed, breakfast, and boys would offer. And I needed to know from each of these men what their age of preference was and what their, their sexual acts 
that they wanted performed. If you are somehow in any doubt of the criminal intention behind this group of men, you will find all the proof you need on the tapes of those conversations. This was the final piece of the puzzle for Bob Hamer. We've got the criminal admissions from everyone. We have the down payments for everyone. We have the travel reservations for everyone. So we're getting ready to, to rock and roll. There are just days left until Bob Hamer springs the trap he's been carefully setting for the past three and a half years. Seven pedophiles are due to arrive in Los Angeles and San Diego to board a boat to Ensenada. In doing so, they are signing their own arrest warrant. Bob is excited and determined, but he's also distracted. At this time, I'm working three separate undercover operations at the same time. I'm involved with uh, an Asian gang that's selling crystal meth and ecstasy. I'm involved in a Asian criminal syndicate that is involved in counterfeit goods, stolen cars, a $60 million shoulder fire missile deal. We are discussing a conspiracy to build a meth factory in North Korea, and I'm purchasing the the super note, a North Korean manufactured counterfeit $100 U.S. currency bill that is nearly undetectable by the naked eye. So I've got a lot of balls in the air that I'm trying to keep balanced. Just your average week at the office then. But the stress of keeping three separate undercover operations moving, of living inside three distinct covers, was beginning to mount. And within a week of the NAMBLA case going down, I end up having an attack of, of ischemic colitis. I end up in intensive care. Bob Hamer is not the kind to dwell on the physical impact that a job like this can take on a person, and much less the emotional one. But his infiltration of NAMBLA had left him burnt down to a nub. I've spent four days in the hospital, two days in intensive care. At one point, I'm, I'm laying in the intensive care room and I hear them call for a crash cart to room 26. And I'm literally thinking, boy, somebody's in trouble. And the crash cart shows up in my room and they're looking at me and my uh, pulse had gone down to 26. Even as he lay there, as close to death as he had come on any of his many undercover operations, Bob had only one thing on his mind. I literally prayed and I said, you know, God, if it's my time, it's my time. But if I die, you're going to screw up three pretty good cases that we've got going. It seems that someone upstairs was looking out for him. Bob was released from hospital on the Monday. On Friday, he was due to collect three NAMBLA members from the San Diego airport. But he was worried that his silence over the previous days had left them spooked. When I finally get home from the hospital, I email everybody and tell them that I'd had a, a medical emergency, but I'm, I'm doing okay and come hell or high water, I'm gonna make this trip to Ensenada. So the trip is still on. David, the flight attendant, Todd, the dentist, and Paul, the bodybuilder, arrive in San Diego. The group of four tourists are to stay one night at an airport hotel before embarking on a life-changing trip in the morning. In Los Angeles, four more NAMBLA members are to be picked up by Bob's colleagues in the FBI and arrested on the docks. Now, Bob simply had to sit back and watch the show unfold. 
The four of us, the three NAMBLA members and myself, had had breakfast in San Diego at the hotel. My case agent up in Los Angeles had called to say, okay, the four people showed up and we've arrested everybody. So we've got four in custody now. They've fulfilled the elements of the offense by attempting to get on the boat. Four predators in cuffs, 120 miles up the road. You have to imagine that Bob Hamer allowed himself a smile on receiving that call. Now I tell David and Todd and Paul that I just heard that they, they got on the boat, the boat is heading down here. It should take three hours to get to uh, the port here in San Diego. Bob and the three Nambler members nervously scratch away at the remaining hours of the morning. For Bob, these are the final moments of a three-year-long investigation. For his guests in the hotel, it will be their final morning of freedom for a long time to come. We waited about three hours. Then I get a phone call. The arrest teams are in place down by the dock. I tell them that the captain called. The boat is going to be there in about a half hour. Let's load up all the bags in my car. Three pedophiles and an undercover agent pile into a car for a short drive to the docks. And now as the four of us get out of the car, we're walking in the rain as we're walking toward the dock. I hear that sound that every undercover agent loves to hear. Halt, FBI, put up your hands, you're under arrest. This is the moment you've been waiting for. Drink it in, Bob Hamer. You've earned it. I'm, I'm gonna admit the truth here. I put on a show. When they said, FBI, you're under arrest, I kind of threw up my crutch, let out this uh, unmanly scream and acted like I was fainting. And one of my buddies on the SWAT team ran over and caught me before I fell down on the ground. But once they put me in the back of the car and pulled away and I saw everyone else and I could see total dejection on their face and knew that they knew that this had all gone wrong and they'd been caught up in a sting operation. They still didn't know that it was me, but they knew that they'd been arrested by the FBI and that they were in violation of the law and their lives were going to be changed. Bob Hamer's infiltration of Nambla yielded eight convictions. The seven who conspired to travel to Mexico to engage in sex with minors as well as the ordained minister who supplied Bob with child pornography. All but one pled guilty. Only Sam Lindblad, the twice convicted offender, went to trial, where he was sentenced to 30 years. Now, as Bob Hamer looks back on one of the final cases of a life spent undercover, he realizes just how much of a toll this investigation took on his life. He spent three and a half years alone amongst the wolves with no one to turn to. We see a psychologist every six months in the undercover program, but I was fearful of telling the psychologist how it was impacting me or how I felt because in reality, I wanted to kill them all. And I knew that if they knew that, they were gonna pull me out of the investigation. But what's most remarkable perhaps about this whole investigation was that Bob Hamer managed to cling to enough of himself to keep his spirit intact. He even had a little fun with it from time to time. 
Take the Christmas card he sent out to all his Nambla pals halfway through the investigation. I actually have an FBI blanket. And one Christmas, my wife took a picture of me. I'm, I'm sitting in front of the, the Christmas tree with a, a walker because I was handicapped. I have the blanket over my knees, but I have the, the FBI blanket folded in such a way that if you know the FBI seal, you recognize this as being the FBI seal. Even in a world as depraved as this one, Bob Hamer wanted to look his enemy in the eye and feel the thrill of the near miss. It was just one more opportunity for me, I guess one more notch on my coup stick, to get close to them and touch them and they not realize that they're being targeted by the Bureau. I'm Vanessa Kirby. Join us next week for another brush with true spies. We all have valuable spy skills and our experts are here to help you discover yours. Get an authentic assessment of your spy skills created by a former head of training at British Intelligence for free now at spyscape.com. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes.